Welcome to Give Methods a Chance, a podcast where we look at social science methods in practice. In this episode, we speak to Francesca Poletta. Francesca is a professor of sociology at the University of California, Irvine. She is the author of Freedom is an Endless Meeting, Democracy in American Social Movements, and It Was Like a Fever, Storytelling in Protest and Politics, as well as many peer-reviewed articles on culture, politics, social movements, and law. Francesca joins us today to talk about using online forums to study public deliberation. Thank you for joining us here today. Thank you. So we're here to talk about conducting research using online forums. If you were to introduce this type of study to an undergraduate class, how would you go about describing it? I'm interested in how people talk in public about issues they care about. Um, what can we tell from that talk about how people imagine their political worlds operating, how they see themselves acting in their political worlds? What limits do they see to their ability to affect change? And how are their political imaginations limited, bounded? It's a tricky question because we don't want to see people as dopes or as dupes, somehow blind to things that we researchers can see. So the trick is to get at the limits on people's political imaginations without treating them as stupid. Okay. And so when we're talking about this, uh, I was hoping to use your study of, pl- of public deliberation about how to rebuild the World Trade Center site in the wake of 9-11 terrorist attacks in particular. So what were your central research questions, or what were you really trying to get at when you started that project? And you just kind of, you started to answer it a bit, but maybe a, a few more specifics. Yeah, well, w- we wanted to intervene in a debate that has really roiled scholars of democracy. Um, so in the last 15 years or so, um, scholars of democracy have argued powerfully that political talk is very important to the vitality of polities. And so there's been a great emphasis on encouraging people to talk in public about issues they care about. Now, we have plenty of examples of political talk that is not successful. Think, for example, of the, of the healthcare town forums where political talk is extreme, is inflammatory, leads people to disagree more than they otherwise would. And so political scholars have argued that a certain kind of public talk should be encouraged, one that's deliberative. And so the image that these scholars began with, and this goes back to Jürgen Habermas, is one of people exchanging reasons. So that in a discussion, rather than just giving your opinion, you also appeal to some principle efficiency, uh, equality, as a way to back up your, your opinions. And the hope is that if people are encouraged to engage in this kind of deliberation, um, it will have all kinds of positive political effects. It will lead to citizens becoming more informed. It will lead them to trust their political institutions, as well as leading to better policies. Now, the debate is over just what this political talk should look like, what counts as good deliberation. And a number of scholars, feminists chiefly, have argued powerfully that the kind of talk that deliberative Democrats champion, oriented to reasons, abstract, 
theoretical is not only more likely to be um, accessible to men, middle-class people, native English speakers, but is all, also more likely to be seen as characteristic of them no matter how they talk. And so these theorists have made a powerful argument for admitting other kinds of talk into deliberation, storytelling, personal experiences, testimony. So this debate has been mainly a theoretical one. And what we saw in the public forums that were organized around rebuilding uh, Lower Manhattan in the wake of, of 9-11 was an opportunity to see just how people use stories and reasons in actual deliberation. And if people are marginalized by an emphasis on using reasons, whether storytelling does allow marginalized groups to get their points across. When you were designing this study, what came first for you, the topic or the methodological approach? Um, did you already have a desire to conduct online research or was that an avenue to get at these questions you were asking? It was an avenue to get at the questions. We would have loved to have studied that in the forum that we studied, um, there was an in-person forum in which 4,500 people gathered in a convention center in lower Manhattan and deliberated about what to build at the site of the former World Trade Center. That was followed by an online forum that went over the course of two weeks in uh, the summer of uh, 2002. We would have loved to have studied how people talked in the in-person forum, but it wasn't methodologically viable. Um, for reasons of human subjects protection, it's hard to um, tape record people in a public forum. Uh, because the groups were very different, we couldn't simultaneously analyze a number of groups. By contrast, the online forum offered us a fantastic opportunity to look at 25 different groups that were talking about the same things. Um, and that feature of the online forum, that it wasn't just one online forum, that because there were over 800 people who participated and they were um, assigned to different groups that all followed the same agenda, that feature of the online forum made it a wonderful opportunity to actually compare how people talk. You raised the issue of respecting human subjects when looking at public deliberation or in-person public deliberation. Is this also a concern with online forums? It's sort of the, it's sort of this uncharted terrain. I think IRBs are really sort of wrestling with how to extend protections um, used with on with in-person interviews and research, how to how to extend it to online forums. Um, in our case, we had access to the, the essentially transcripts of the discussions. Those were public, so we didn't have any issues there. But we also had access to demographic information that all participants provided the organizers of the forum. Um, and so because we had access to that information, we had to uh, go through IRB. That was important to do. 
And I, I would just mention one of the challenges of studying online forums is that in general, usually we don't know who is participating. So if there's an online forum that's about gun control or about pornography, we don't know whether the people participating in the forum are typical of people who uh, are concerned about these issues or uh, whether they represent one side of a spectrum of views. Uh, in that respect, we were lucky in this study, and this is one of the things that made it feasible, in that uh, we had data on all the participants. But I think in general, one of the challenges that we have in studying online forums is to figure out just who the participants are representative of. Your interest was in the types of stories people use or the types of deliberation they engage in. So what did the posts actually look like on this online forum? Well, there were thousands of posts. The way that the uh, forum was organized was, as I say, there were 25 groups. Uh, people began by introducing themselves in each group. And then throughout the two weeks of discussion, people could go to the introductions page and see um, the, the biographies. And that was important because we were interested in how people interacted in the group. And the fact that this was not anonymous was important to the organizers of the forum. They felt that there would be less um, sort of extreme views being posted. But it was also uh, an it also made it possible for us to argue people knew the gender of a poster. They knew what their background was and so on. Um, after introducing themselves, over the course of the two weeks, uh, participants talked in turn about um, general issues in rebuilding their aspirations for what would be built at low, in Lower Manhattan. They talked about um, economic development issues, transportation issues, parks and recreation, sort of all issues having to do with what should be built uh, in Lower Manhattan. And then finally, their ideas for a memorial that would be designed uh, for the site. Um, the posts were asynchronous, which means that um, people could post at any time and it would show up in a thread of discussions. Uh, and they could read the posts of other groups but could only post to their own group. So that really gave us, when we reviewed the transcripts of the discussion, that really gave us a sense of how 25 groups of people talked about the same things. Now, a lot of the posts were um, people um, describing their experiences of Lower Manhattan and of their own neighborhoods. Um, people oftentimes went off topic to talk about restaurants they liked and so on. But we were interested in the discussions that were focused on the sort of issues the organizers had raised. Right? So how did people deliberate about policy? Um, every once in a while, uh, the groups were asked to summarize the results of their discussions, and those uh, recommendations were then forwarded to the authorities who were in charge of rebuilding the site. So group members were really asked to talk about the issues, but also to arrive at some agreement about how they wanted Lower Manhattan to look. So you had the transcripts of all these conversations. This seems like 
a large amount of data. So did you have a sampling strategy to narrow it down or did you actually read through all of this? Yeah, we decided to select 12 groups. So I worked with a real technical whiz, John Lee, on this. And so he was able to develop programs that allowed us to look at things like the length of the messages across all 25 groups, how many people participated from the group across 25 groups. But when it came down to looking at how people forwarded opinions, right? whether they used reasons to back up their opinions as classical deliberative Democrats would like them to do, or whether they used stories to back up their opinions as critics of deliberative democracy have argued. When it came down to that level of analysis, we did have to read through them and code them. And so we selected 12 groups to focus on how people made arguments uh, in favor of opinions, whether they used stories, whether they used reasons, um, who used stories and who used reasons, and how they were responded to. So we were interested not only in when people turned to using a story rather than a reason, but also whether telling a story worked. Are people persuaded by stories? Do people hear a story and say, oh, thanks for that story, let's move on? And so to, for that analysis, we read through all the posts in 12 groups and coded the, re the claims that they made and the reasons they gave. So you were using this quantitative approach that your collaborator designed, but you're also using more classic qualitative uh, methods of inquiry. How did they work in conjunction with each other? Well, this was actually still, it was, it was coding, but we still ended up using, you know, logistic regressions to, to measure the sort of likelihood that someone would tell a story and that someone would uh, give a reason. Um, we went even deeper and, and really um, used a kind of interpretive qualitative analysis once we had generated certain, once we'd found certain patterns in the data in these 12 groups, once we'd found that um, people tended to tell stories when they saw themselves as having an unfamiliar or unpopular point of view. So our interest to begin with was in who told stories. We found that women were more likely to tell stories uh, than men, but when women told stories, their stories were just as persuasive or just as likely to be engaged by people posting in the thread as were people using non-narrative claims, as were people using uh, reasons. So we found that telling stories seemed to be um, a, an effect effective way to make a point, but we were struck by the fact that I think it was something like five or six times as many narrative claims were made when the person was forwarding an opinion they saw as uncommon or unpopular. So someone would say something like, most people believe that the towers should be rebuilt, but I don't. And then they would tell a story. So there we saw the pattern in the data, but to understand what was behind that pattern, why people were telling stories when they had a minority point of view, we did a close analysis of all those 
um, posts and looked more broadly at the exchange in which the story was told. So there it was important not just to understand, not just to analyze the particular message that someone sent or posted to the thread, but also to, to look at what came before that, what came after that. And so the quantitative analysis allowed us to identify certain broad patterns across the 12 groups, but then to really understand what was behind those patterns. What were people trying to do with stories and reasons? We did a closer qualitative analysis of a set of exchanges. Were there any unexpected challenges or did anything go wrong during either the conducting of the, or the collecting of the data or the analysis of the data? Um, the, the, the big surprise to me, because I've been studying storytelling for a long time, and one of the arguments I've made is that um, stories are a good way to get at culture in politics because a story is a bounded chunk of discourse. Stories have beginnings, middle, and ends. You can tell what is a story in a text where it's more difficult, I've argued, to say where a frame begins and ends or where ideology begins and ends. To my surprise, it was very difficult to identify a story in, in the transcripts. Um, oftentimes, people would say they're the... Um, Linguists have identified cri formal criteria for a story. So a story should have an orientation that is kind of scene setting. Uh, and then there's it's, the orientation is followed by a set of and then clauses. This happened, and then this happened, and then this happened. And the story should also have an evaluation, something that tells us why uh, it's important, a kind of moral of the story. What we found when we began to try to code the data, and we spent weeks and weeks, there were several coders, and we spent weeks and weeks trying to come up with agreement on what counted as a story in the data. Uh, what we found is that oftentimes people would seem to be starting to tell a story. They'd say, I remember when I was a young man. But then there wouldn't be a set of and-then clauses. Um, or people would refer to a story without, out, without telling the story. Um, or people would tell a story that wasn't about a particular set of events, but a recurrent set of experiences. So I used to go to restaurants downtown, and I always found that I loved something about them. And so we really struggled in figuring out how to code. This was even before we began coding. We really struggled with figuring out how to be flexible enough to capture what people do when they're actually telling stories, which is not to hew strictly to the formal criteria of storytelling, while at the same time not losing what makes stories interesting, which is that we know when we hear a story in conversation. Since even that fundamental definition of a story seems so difficult to define, how did you deal with having multiple coders working on the project? We um, went over the transcripts over and over and over again. And I think one of the 
frustrating but fascinating things about doing coding, and I, I've experienced this over and over again, is that I can come up with a coding guide. I can come up with a set of criteria um, for coding something as a story or as a reason, uh, and it will seem absolutely transparent to me. But then when I give that guide to another coder and ask her to use it, um, she'll find problems with, with it that I hadn't even thought of. And the reason I think this is fascinating is because I think it points to the fact that meaning is something that is extraordinarily um, complex. We are sophisticated in our ability to grasp people's meaning. And that makes it very difficult to kind of code someone's meaning in, you know, an algorithm. Um, so the interesting part is that people actually are able to convey meaning in subtle, complicated ways. The difficult part is how we then grasp that meaning in a way that doesn't just depend on the particular coder. And uh, I think it requires simply going over the transcripts over and over and over again until the group reaches some level of acceptable agreement. So as you mentioned, you've been studying storytelling for a longer period of time. Was there something that stood out as being different about stories occurring online versus offline? Good question, and I've, I've wondered about that. Um, I would really like to compare storytelling in an online forum with an in-person forum. Um, one of the things that we know about storytelling is that while we tend to think that one tells one story and everyone just sits and listens till the end, that the audience is kind of passive. In fact, what we know from storytelling is that it is much more a collective enterprise, that the audience actively participates in extracting the meaning of the events that the narrator recounts, sometimes in filling in events, sometimes in contradicting the events. So storytelling is a much more kind of cooperative, collaborative enterprise than we often think of it as being. Now, in an online forum, especially one that's asynchronous so that people have time, they're sitting in their own homes posting to these threads, uh, they're able to tell their whole story without anyone intervening. So I suspect that the stories were different for that reason alone. Um, and that simply suggests that the importance of comparing stories in online and in-person forums. Um, one other issue that I, I really want to study is something I mentioned a moment ago, that oftentimes the stories that are most powerful, I would argue, are the stories that we don't tell explicitly, that we just refer to. Um, we, we invoke you could call them capsule stories or kernel stories where I'll say, oh yeah, that Horatio Alger story. I won't tell the Horatio Alger story, but by simply referring to it, I've communicated meaning. And one thing I'd like to figure out, I haven't figured out how to do it, is to capture the, 
rhetorical function of these allusions to stories rather than um, the full uh, recounting of the story. When, when students are learning about research methodology, especially with the first time they're exposed to it, um, they're often introduced to the ideas of generalizability and validity. How did these factor into your project? Or were these things that concerned you or that you thought about? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and especially, it's especially challenging issues of that validity are especially challenging when you're trying to get at meaning. Um, so I argue that the virtue of this kind of coding of talk um, is that you can get at people's beliefs as they articulate them, right? So it's very different from an interview or for, um, a, for than a setting where someone is, you know, trying to really put their best foot forward. Here you see them talking about issues that concern them in a natural setting. Now, you can't get at their intentions. We, we know that people's motivations, all of our motivations are complicated, are ambiguous, uh, are changing. Uh, and so I argue that by studying the kind of context of a set of utterances, by looking not only at the stories that people told, but the discursive context in which they told them, right? So when someone told a story, how was it responded to? That that can get us at, uh, get us closer to how people use stories and why people use stories. I'll give one example. One of the things we found when we did this kind of closer, more in-depth analysis of how people were using the stories was that people would often say something like, um, I agree completely with what you just said after someone had told a story. And then they would tell their own story. We know that's quite common, that when someone tells a story, oftentimes a member of the audience will respond with their own story. But what was interesting to us was that people often then told a story that made what seemed to us a completely different point. So one person told a story about how upsetting it was that tourists were descending on ground zero. She felt that it was... Um, disrespectful to the tragedy that had taken place there. And another participant responded, I agree with you completely, and then told her own story, which was not critical of the people descending on ground zero, but rather saying they're pilgrims, they need to understand what happened. Um, and then a third participant weighed in and said, I agree, and sort of Try, brought, in a sense, brought the two views together by saying people can't really understand what happened, but they try as best they can, and how terrible that people criticize them. What was interesting to us was that it seemed that people were using stories to disagree with each other without being hostile, without antagonizing them. One of the things that we know from studies of, of public deliberation, not the theory of public deliberation, but the actual practice of it, is that people are really worried that other people will disagree with them. 
they see it as an attack on them. And so what these exchanges suggested to us is that telling a story may be a way to disagree with someone without seeming to disagree. Now, do we know for sure that that's what people were doing with their stories? No. But by looking at the context of the use of stories and the response to stories in several different groups, we were able to say, yeah, we think this is what people are doing with stories. Now, on the generalizability issue, this was something that we really struggled with in this case because um, the public deliberation that followed 9-11 was in many ways unlike any other public deliberation. This was following up on a tragedy of massive proportions. And so you might argue, sure, people told stories in this public deliberation, but they're not going to tell stories when the public deliberation is about how to cut down urban sprawl in my city or um, how we should deal with the federal deficit, both of which have been the topics of public deliberative forums. And our response to that was, one, that in fact many public deliberative forums are about emotional issues. So there have been public deliberative forums about police brutality, about cancer, and so on. Um, But more importantly, in the public deliberative forum that we studied, the vast majority of people's comments were not about their experience of 9-11. So they really were telling stories not only about what had happened during that tragedy, but much more sort of prosaic stories about, you know, as I said, restaurants they like to go to or um, what was important to them in the way their downtown was organized. That said... Um, I think our final answer to the question of generalizability is this is one study of one public deliberative forum, albeit one that had 25 different groups, which makes it somewhat unusual. But to understand better how public deliberation operates, we need more studies of other public deliberative forums. So you've shared a number of your uh, of findings and ideas that have emerged from the study. Is there any other particular core finding or sociological contribution you'd like to share from the study? Yeah, we the, the one of the most striking findings to us in the study was that people told stories in. Um, some discussions and not in others. So as I said, the discussion was organized by topic. So in the first few days, people talked about the site generally. In the next couple of days, they talked about transportation. They talked about economic development. They talked about um, rebuild, about a memorial for the site. And so they'd spend a few days on each issue. What we found was that people were much more likely to tell stories during the discussions of the memorial and during the discussions of the sort of general site than they were to tell stories during discussions of economic development for the site and transportation. 
Now, you might say big surprise, right, that economic development and transportation are technical, policy, more policy-focused uh, issues, uh, and so it makes more sense that people would tell stories when the issues were more kind of value-laden ones. But, in fact, um, the organizers were trying to encourage people to tell stories during the discussions of economic development and transportation, precisely because those would be discussions in which people's stories could really reframe the debate. So a number of small business owners participated in this forum because they were frustrated by the fact that federal grants were being given to huge companies to prevent them from leaving lower Manhattan while their businesses were suffering without any help at all. They could have told those stories. People who lived adjacent to the site were really concerned about the possibility that a road might be put underground. They could have told those stories as a way to sway uh, opinion about those uh, issues. So people could have told stories during those discussions, probably would have been well served by telling stories during those discussions, but didn't. I've argued that people's views of storytelling are ambivalent, and that as a result of that ambivalence, we're likely to tell stories on occasions that are seen as ceremonial, that are seen as emotional, but when it comes to more technical, serious, political discussions, we're unlikely to tell stories. That was a hunch. To try to get at that further, in another analysis, we pulled out of the transcripts every reference to story, narrative, storytelling in the transcripts. We wanted to know how people talked about stories. And what we found was this ambivalence. That on one hand, people would talk about stories as being powerful, emotional, um, as being normative, but they would also talk about stories as being trivial, unimportant, subjective, biased. Um, so someone would tell a story and they would say, but that's just a story. Or someone said, um, we want this memorial to be something more than just a story. So what we saw, again, in a more qualitative analysis of how people talked about the discursive form is a real kind of anxiety that storytelling is politically unserious and therefore inappropriate uh, for more technical political policy-oriented discussions. And so right at the beginning of our conversation, I said that one of the things that I'm interested in is how people's political imaginations are unnecessarily limited. And this seems to me to be one of the ways in which that happens, that even though stories are rhetorically powerful, are persuasive, we don't allow ourselves from telling them, we don't allow ourselves to tell them, we censor ourselves from telling them on occasions that we see as politically, un, that we see as politically serious. When you were designing and conducting this study, did you have a particular audience in mind? And did that shape the research at all? I was trying to speak to sociologists 
uh, political scientists and people who practice public deliberation. Um, so one of the things that has struck me about uh, the huge literature now on deliberative democracy and political science is that a lot of it is theoretical rather than empirical. And even the empirical research is fairly uninformed by sociological insights. So what I was trying to do in this study was to say to political scholars of democracy, um, we'll know much more about what deliberation should look like if we can tell something about how people actually deliberate. And to do that, we need a sociological study of how people deliberate. So I tried to speak to political scientists by bringing sociology to bear. Um, I spoke to sociologists by bringing to bear these ideas about uh, storytelling, reason giving, and their potential conflict. I was hoping that to conclude, we could return to that imaginary undergraduate audience that we started with and really sell this approach to them. So what are the main benefits or advantages of choosing this type of methodological orientation? The main advantage is that one can see how people talk about politics, about their political worlds, about where they see the limits uh, to their own ability to affect change, uh, that we get a kind of glimpse of how people think about their worlds, uh, not when asked by a survey researcher, um, but when they're talking with people who may share those political views or may have different views. And so we've, all, we've long known that people's conversations can give us powerful access to the meanings that shape their behavior. But the question is kind of what chunk of conversation do we study? Conversation analysts spend huge amount of energy analyzing the mechanics of one conversation. Uh, what's powerful, I think, about this kind of research, studying online forums and talk in online forums, is that we can get access to more conversation. We can compare how the makeup of the group shapes their conversation. We can look at how people respond to certain uh, conversational or rhetorical forms. So the advantage, I think, of this approach is that it gives us access to people's political beliefs in a natural setting. Well, thank you again for joining us. That was incredibly insightful. Thank you. This was fun. On behalf of me, Sarah Loggison, and my co-producer, Kyle Green, thank you so much for listening. And remember, please give Methods a chance.